We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. It is Wednesday, January 10th. Can you believe we are already 10 days into the new year? It's just going to go by so quick as it continues to do. And I feel like the older I get, the quicker time flies. And somebody once described this to me, and I feel like it made sense, that um, the older you get, then one year is a less of a um, of a fraction of your whole life. I mean, when you're when you're three, then one year is literally a third of your life. But when you are almost forty, like me, one year is only one fortieth of your life. So it is actually a smaller fraction of time. So it feels different. And whether or not that's that's um, you know the the physicists who are listening to us and the um, the scientists are probably laughing at me, and that's okay. But it feels like that that actually makes sense. That it's um, it's not as big of a of an overall part of uh, of your entire existence and your experience. And so it feels like time continues to go faster. Or maybe it's just that we become so much busier. Um, that's that's also definitely part of it. I mean, I remember even in college, it seemed like it was going to take forever because I was in college and then law school for seven years. And, um, you know, ultimately to then to get my uh, Juris Doctor degree, and it just felt like that was never going to end. And now all of a sudden, it's almost 20 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy that I, that I started college. So anyway, 10 days, and then pretty soon we're going to be celebrating Christmas again. <laughs> but the top headline uh, this morning is, of course, that uh, President Trump's attorneys argued in the D.C. Circuit uh, Court of Appeals yesterday on the issue of presidential immunity. And this is a really important issue in terms of precedent overall uh, for the nation, for the country, for the Constitution. This should not turn on whether you or I are necessarily a fan or not of President Trump, what you think about the ongoing cases. The issue of presidential immunity and the precedent that is set will have far-reaching implications um, to the future and even potentially into the past. Um, Some of the arguments that were raised by President Trump's counsel suggested that if a president could be criminally prosecuted for actions that he or potentially in the future she uh, take under the color of their authority and official acts as the president of the United States, then this could have um, implications that a, a future um, Department of Justice or a future um, state prosecutor could go back and look at, for example, a former president, George Bush, and suggest that uh, because of the inducements to uh, to Congress in terms of that testimony to engage us into 
um, the war and and into all of the conflicts and and that whole uh, issue of the weapons of mass destruction, which you know we all uh, look back on probably not favorably on uh, George Bush that he could potentially be prosecuted for that. Is there even a statute of limitations on that? Um, you know w- what would possibly happen? So the issue should have been framed and solely discussed on what immunity looks like. And in the in the law, we have a concept of qualified immunity. It's it's never absolute. There are always exceptions to the rules. And uh, we have this understanding of qualified immunity, meaning that a person, um, for example, a, a lot of us have, have discussed over the last um, two or three years, the issue of qualified immunity for police officers. If they're acting in their official capacity, then they should be immune from uh, from civil liability and criminal prosecution. But we always see that there are exceptions. If they go beyond or use excessive force, for example, then uh, police officers can potentially be charged. And so there's this, this issue of qualified immunity. There's the legislative immunity. Uh, for legislators, if a constituent doesn't like what a legislator votes for or does in his or her official capacity as a legislator, they can't bring a civil lawsuit and that person couldn't be prosecuted for exercising their duty. So that was really what the case should have been about is how far reaching and to what extent should immunity cover the official acts of a sitting president or of a former president. And this is a very interesting case because we not only have a former president, but we also have a current candidate for president, again, in the person of Donald Trump. Um, but the the argument kind of went completely sideways um, because the uh, former uh, solicitor general of uh, Missouri, I think it is, uh, that uh, attorney uh, John Sauer, who represented President Trump, started his argument with all of the exceptions to presidential immunity. And once you start with all of the exceptions, then that just completely chips away at the rule. And you have to articulate and define what is the rule, what is the limiting principle, and then uh, then go into some of these exceptions. And the hypotheticals that the panel of judges asked, I, I think were actually relevant, um, but it, th- the argument just kind of got lost into all of these um, somewhat ridiculous hypotheticals that then ended up with this whole narrative that at the end of the day, the argument, in my view, was a little bit absurd because the headlines coming out of yesterday were that President Trump's team argued that a president could actually command and order SEAL Team 6 to go and assassinate a political uh, rival and that would be immune from prosecution unless there was an impeachment and conviction through the Article I process in Congress. And looking at just the plain language of the Constitution, looking at um, overall just the, uh, the fundamental logic of due process, that seems to me to be patently absurd. Um, so if you go into Article I and you actually look at the impeachment clause, It says in uh, Article 1, Section 3.6, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, 
they shall be tried on oath or affirmation. When the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall preside and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. And so this this uh, clause at the very end of Section 3.7, I think, is kind of where this whole theory uh, was generated by um, by Team Trump to say, but the party convicted in in terms of the Senate so convicted not in the judicial branch, not in a criminal court. This is a quasi-judicial process in terms of impeachment. And the consequence for that, the judgment, um, won't extend further than to removal from office and disqualification. That's that's literally the only punishment that the Senate could impose. Uh, but then this clause says the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. So how Team Trump is interpreting this, uh, the back end of this Section 3.7 is to say that unless a, a president is actually convicted of impeachment, then this nevertheless clause, that's the only instance in which uh, then the the party can uh, be subject to trial or other processes according to the law. But I don't read the Constitution that way. I don't think the plain language of the Constitution uh, would suggest that it's only, uh, that due process requires that it's only after impeachment and conviction that a president would be liable and subject to indictment, um, trial, judgment, and punishment according to the law. What I think the Constitution is very clearly saying is that a conviction in the Senate is not the only form of accountability that a president may be subject to. And to say basically uh, that there's a principle in law called uh, res judicata, or the thing has, has already been decided, and this goes into somewhat the principles of double jeopardy and, you know, some of these other due process concerns that the that it, that impeachment and conviction would be the only method of accountability and the only liability that a sitting president could incur. And the Constitution is saying, no, uh, the, the president can still be uh, liable for that. And it doesn't say that um, and it, I mean, it doesn't just say that the party has to be convicted. It says if the party is convicted or but the party convicted shall nevertheless be subject to that. Um, it's not saying that that due process requires that the party has to be convicted and only in that instance of conviction, then that party will be subject to further accountability according to the law. But that's basically what uh, Team Trump argued is that um, because there, there was impeachment, but there was no conviction, that now presidential immunity attaches. And I personally don't think that that is the best way to frame the argument, um, because then it got into so many other hypotheticals and so many instances of saying, well, what if for political purposes, the Senate doesn't convict? What if, you know, all of these other instances that would clearly be violations of criminal law, clearly be outside the scope of legitimate presidential duties, even in that instance, a president couldn't be held uh, liable. And so the issue should have been framed 
Does the action of a president while he is president and within the confines of his official duties give him immunity from uh, later prosecution? And the answer should be yes, if he's acting within the scope of his official duties. But for some reason, this got really, really convoluted um, because of where the attorney representing Trump, um, Mr. Sauer, went in terms of the argument. And so um, a lot of this started trending, and uh, most of the headlines yesterday were was about this exchange between Judge Pan, um, who is a Democrat appointee, um, shouldn't matter for, for the trial. I don't actually think that there was a clear you know, bias either way, like a lot of people were suggesting. I think these these questions were valid given the trajectory of the argument. Uh, but this exchange from Judge Pan and uh, John Sauer in terms of uh, presidential immunity and things that would clearly be outside the scope of legitimate presidential authority. So we'll listen to just uh, the first couple minutes of this. This is cut one. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to seal Team Six. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. If what if he weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that. Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, 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 and our Constitution tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so, so your answer is, is, no. is My answer is qualified, yes. There is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. But what the founders were much more worried about than using criminal prosecution to discipline presidents was what uh, James Madison calls in Federalist Number 47, the, you know, the, the newfangled and artificial treasons. They were much more concerned about the abuse of the criminal process for political purposes purposes to disable the presidency from factions and political opponents. And of course, that's exactly what we see in this case. I've, I've asked you a, a series of hypotheticals about criminal actions that could be taken by a president and could be considered official acts. And I've asked you, would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached or convicted? Requirement. And your answer, your yes or no answer is no. I, I believe I said qualified yes if he's impeached or convicted first. Uh, we may be saying the same thing. was okay. So he's not impeached or conviction been convicted. Let's put that aside. You're saying a president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team Six to assassinate a, a political rival. Sale of military secrets strikes me as something that might not be held to be an official act. The sale of pardons is something that's come up historically okay. and was not prosecuted. But your brief so, says that communicating with an executive branch agency is an official act. And communicating with a foreign government is an official act. That's what presidents do. Those are very strong situations. Those are very strong examples of potential official acts. If you look at what Chief Justice Mitchell said in against Madison, he said, rising directly under Article Two, Section One, that the uh, uh, the courts that the president's official acts are quote never examinable by the courts. And he says it like four different times on pages one sixty four to one sixty six. Well, let me ask you about that then, counsel, because your position is, as I understand it. If a president is impeached or convicted, impeached and convicted by Congress, then he is subject to criminal prosecution, correct? That would be a necessary 
Is that too Is that a yes? Yes. Okay. So therefore, he's not completely and absolutely immune because under the procedure that you concede, he can be prosecuted if there's an impeachment and conviction by the Senate. Very, very formidable structural check against the astonishing radical action of prosecuting a former president. Correct, but you're conceding that presidents can be criminally prosecuted under certain circumstances. Specifically, if they're impeached and convicted, I think that's the plain of the impeachment judgment clause. And isn't that also a concession that a president can be criminally prosecuted for an official act because presidents can be impeached for official acts? Under those unique circumstances. Correct, but given that you're conceding that presidents can be criminally prosecuted, under certain circumstances, doesn't that narrow the issues before us to can a president be impeached? Um, I'm sorry, can a president be prosecuted without first being impeached um, and convicted? It, 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 all of your other arguments seem to fall away. Your separation of powers arguments fall away. Your policy arguments fall away if you concede that a president can be criminally prosecuted under some circumstances. And let's stop this here. Um, let's let's stop this here. So this kind of you know goes on um, for a long time. And really, what this judge and, and this is very typical in the back and forth exchange of oral argument is that the the judge was pressing uh, Sauer on the issue of uh, of does impeachment and conviction under the Constitution is that the only instance then in in which then a, a uh, former president or a current president could then face a criminal liability. And if the answer to that is yes, then he is conceding that under some circumstances, which would then be impeachment and conviction, then a, a president isn't absolutely immune. And that, and really what should the argument should have been and what I think um, the, the attorney for Trump failed to to make very clear is under what circumstances uh, does the rule of qualified immunity or presidential immunity, uh, under what circumstances does a president get immunity? And if it is clear it's for an official act, then then go for the, the broad argument instead of all of these exceptions and instead of this kind of um, novel idea of process, because this kind of process I don't think is in the plain language of the Constitution. And it got um, it, it kind of convoluted the argument. And so for purposes of of all of us who are who are Americans that are watching this process unfold, I think what's important, obviously, um, it, it's very important to President Trump as the party uh, in this case uh, to, to see what the opinion ultimately will be. But I think that for generally for Americans, we need to be concerned about precedent, because if we extend the argument that Trump's team was trying to promulgate, then this would cover a lot of acts that presidents, um, sh frankly, should be impeached and convicted for. Uh, but if they don't, because for some reason they have the majority of the party in either the House or the Senate, and you never get to that two-thirds majority in the Senate and they're not convicted, then they would be immune from criminal prosecution for things that are clearly outside the scope of official duty. So you first have to go back and say, what is an official duty of the president? What would be something that could not be prosecuted um, just because it is overtly a, a political decision to go after a president. So you have to have a rule 
that can be applied in a much greater framework than just this one instance of President Trump. So ultimately, I, I don't think that the immunity argument um, is going to be um, opined or uh, the, the opinion is not going to be in favor of uh, President Trump. That's just my prediction based on how the arguments were framed and all of this going on. And I hope that the rule here is going to make sense in the greater context of law and precedent. So uh, we'll talk about that um, more as we get the opinion. And um, the bottom line for all of us is that we all need to be very concerned about precedent and making sure that the law reflects what should happen constitutionally, the limitations, and also that we understand uh, that this isn't just about one instance. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are talking about uh, the presidential immunity issue that was argued in uh, the D.C. Circuit Court yesterday. And uh, one of the the final comments I'll make and then I'll bring in uh, my next guest for his uh, view on this overall issue um, and more is that uh, also the attorney for President Trump mentioned um, Federalist 47. And, um, and and I think that the, in, in the context of the overall purpose of Federalist 47, and I encourage everyone to go out and actually read the Federalist papers, because uh, these are, of course, the... Um, the articles that promoted the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in its original form as we uh, transitioned as a country from uh, the Articles of Confederation to having at least a little bit more of a uh, of a federal uh, presence in Washington and a little bit more power to the federal government while still holding on to state sovereignty. And so these were um, 85 articles and essays by three different lawyers, um, John Jay, the first Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, and uh, and they describe almost like a legislative history in a sense of the Constitution, and so give us more insight. And so even though uh, the Federalist Papers are not the text of the Constitution, they do give us insight in terms of the framers' intent and their mind. And you'll remember Justice Scalia was a huge fan of um, legislative intent and kind of the legislative history of a law when there was a question over interpretation of a particular text. And 
there was um, kind of some argument over the plain meaning of the text, then you can go back to the legislative history that might give you some insight. So Federalist 47 from Madison is all about the separation of powers. And so I think the argument that Trump's lawyer was trying to make is that um, if you have the judicial branch that can uh, prosecute a former uh, chief executive or chief magistrate or president, then that gives too much authority to a judicial branch for political purposes and is a violation of the separation of powers. But what ultimately didn't really come across in the argument is that um, there there has to be accountability and we do have coordinate branches they're not co-equal but they're coordinate branches on the federal level so that we do have some accountability in the process i mean this is why uh, there are lawsuits in the judicial branch that can invalidate um, a piece of legislation, for example, that's not a violation of the separation of powers if it is deemed unconstitutional. That's the whole purpose of the judicial branch. And so I think that that argument kind of failed on its face in terms of um, a violation of the separation of powers. But it's important to note that when you go back and you look at the Federalist Papers, um, a lot of it can be very insightful in terms of the legislative history. So overall, again, I think that the opinion that we are going to see from the circuit court is going to be one that is um, very, probably very narrow, but um, but basically just denying the presidential immunity claim. So let's bring on um, our guest who's going to stay with us for um, the remainder of the show. Very excited um, to have all of his great insights, our good friend, uh, Bill Mitchell, who is the host of Your Voice America. So Bill, I don't know if you um, paid attention as closely to uh, this argument as I did yesterday, but I know that um, from a just a political view, you. Um, you know, you had some comments uh, on X and, and probably on your show as well about this whole presidential immunity claim. So um, so first, before we get into Iowa and some of that other stuff, what was your view of um, the arguments that were put forward by Trump's team? Hey, Jenna, thanks. And welcome to your uh, audience. Um, yeah, you know, Trump's two main defenses, uh, especially in the J6 trial, um, is that he first of all was uh, his First Amendment right. Okay, his right to free speech, and also his um, immunity, the immunity case. And the judge in the case already sort of struck down the First Amendment thing. As I listen, you know, you have First Amendment rights except if you're involved in committing a crime, and therefore, you know, you give up your First Amendment rights when you're committing a crime. And um, also on the immunity thing, she said, you know, uh, a president doesn't have a blank check to do whatever he wants. And I think that what Trump's lawyers here are doing is um, misinterpreting the uh, language of the impeachment language where it says, you know, a president should be impeached, you know, by the House and then convicted by two thirds of the Senate. And then it goes on to say, um, and if that happens, then that's not the end of it necessarily, because that president can still then, if he's convicted, be um, uh, prosecuted uh, for violating those. There were crimes involved violating those crimes after he leaves office. That's basically my my, you know, Cliff Notes version of that. Um, and I think they're misinterpreting that to say that a president has to be impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate before he can be prosecuted for any crimes. That's not what it's saying. That, that's not where it's going with that. So I think that uh, and you got that read even from the Bush appointed judge on this three judge panel that uh, this isn't going to fly. And, and, you know, I'm a little bit concerned that Trump seems to be more um, arguing in favor of immunity as opposed to uh, arguing his innocence. You know, and if arguing for immunity, is he sort of giving up the whole, you know, I'm innocent argument here? I don't know. You know, I don't know how that's going to work. But um, 
Yeah, so I don't think he's going to succeed on this. Uh, if, if you read from the, the judges, um, and I was reading one commentator saying, you know, when you have one of these appeals court cases, whoever, whichever person in the appeals case is getting the most questions, whoever's lawyers are getting the most questions, they're probably going to lose. And in this case, you know, Trump's people were getting all the questions, as opposed to the justice uh, lawyers were getting all the questions. So um, I didn't get the feeling they were leaning towards uh, Trump on that. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if his First Amendment argument is taken away um, and his uh, immunity argument is taken away and he's going to be heard on this case before, uh, you know, a D.C. jury, and we've got this latest videotape that's just been re released of some of the real violence that took place there on January 6th. I think, I don't know, Jenna, I don't know how he's going to get out of this. You know, I just don't. So th that's my read on this, that they will, uh, you know, deny his, his uh, immunity claim. And then we have to decide if, if the Supreme Court will even take it uh, because he's been denied, denied, denied. You know, will they even take it? Because I think what Trump is really trying to do here is delay this entire process. Uh, right now, the hearing is set for March, which means, you know, they would have a verdict long before November 5th. Is he trying to just delay the process until we get past November 5th uh, when it might become a moot point? So but that's my take on it. Anyway. Well, I agree with your constitutional analysis and uh, and how the, the language, the plain language of the impeachment clause does not suggest that a president has to be. Uh, impeached and convicted before then facing uh, any other accountability by right. uh, the Department of Justice or the judicial branch. But let's also remember that you know this um, this kind of interlocutory appeal, as as it's as it's called, is kind of like in the midst of before you have the trial and a verdict, then you yeah. can appeal certain issues. That's what's going on. Um, it's the Justice Department that actually wanted to settle this this claim. Um, so it wasn't Trump's lawyers that are that that initially uh, put this forward in terms of um, the appellate process. Oh, okay. I think that this is, um, you know, this is something that needs to be, it's an issue of law that needs to be settled uh, before right. a trial would take place, um, because that would certainly be one of the defenses at trial. And so, um, so in terms of, of the time frame, you know, I think we could also make the argument that, um, you know, the Justice Department is trying to hurry this um, before the election. And maybe, you know, Trump is trying to, um, to, to have that extended until past the election. But ultimately, what Americans should be concerned with, and I know a lot of people have a a lot of different opinions on Trump. But um, the the main issue in terms of presidential immunity is uh, is what you just said, Bill Mitchell, and I agree with you that it would not make sense constitutionally in um, in the sense of the plain language, nor as a precedent for future presidents to somehow right. suggest that the only form of accountability they would ever face would only be after impeachment and conviction, because we've never had a president that's been impeached and convicted and and, and removed. Um, we've had right. attempts, of course, but if that were the uh, if that were the process, then it would require a political process, an inherently political process, right. before you get to the judicial branch. And one of the things that I think the Department of Justice said and framed very well yesterday was that the the justice and and the um, the. The Department of Justice and the judicial branch as a whole is supposed to be impartial. Now, we can have the debates on weaponization of government, whether they actually are impartial, all of that. But in terms of just um, in general, impeachment is a political process and justice should be 
um, should be impartial, should be fair, should be unbiased. That's why you have all of these elements of due process that you really don't have in the in the whole um, idea of impeachment and the whole process of impeachment. So, um, so I think overall, Bill Mitchell, you're um, you're spot on in terms of how this is going to go, and I think that the Supreme Court um, will only take this up if there's something that they think either the DC uh, Circuit Court aired on or they think that the opinion was not robust enough to clarify this and they don't want to keep it um, in place. But I don't really see the Supreme Court um, otherwise, if, if not for one of those two things, um, taking it up and you know further extending this in terms of a controversy. But um, and in just the last two minutes that we have in this segment, and then you'll be joining us in the next one, um, you know, this is in stark contrast, I think, to the 14th Amendment issue that is being taken up by the Supreme Court. Arguments are going to happen February 8th. And your quick take on that, because I think that that um, Trump should win on. And that is a ridiculous interpretation of the 14th Amendment that in terms of precedent should not stand. Well, you know, we, you and I may differ on that one a little bit, but you know, the, what people need to realize is that when it comes to the Supreme Court, which is basically like an appeals court in, in essence, um, they don't typically tend to rule on, um, you know, findings of, of facts. They're going to be ruling on findings of, of law. So the, the uh, uh, judge uh, in, the, uh, in the Colorado case, uh, after I think it was a five-day trial, um, decided that Trump had engaged in insurrection. Now, he hasn't been convicted of insurrection. But people need to realize that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is not a criminal proceeding. It's a civil proceeding. And in order to be, um, uh, for something to be used in a civil proceeding, you don't have to have a criminal conviction. For instance, uh, go back to the OJ uh, trial. You know, he was, he was, uh, um, he was not convicted in the criminal trial, but then he was, did lose the civil trial. So it's a little bit convoluted and, and confusing there. And we'll take um, a break right here and we'll be back with more. And you can finish your thought on the flip side. Bill Mitchell will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advanced from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org AFR. That's chministries.org AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. And we are talking with my good friend, Bill Mitchell, who is the host of Your Voice America. You should follow him at Mitchell VII on X and also go to yourvoicenews.com. So, um, Bill, before we had to take the break, you were talking about um, the 14th Amendment uh, claim. Right. That's the one that is uh, is poised to potentially take Trump off the ballot. Um, I uh, it's my view that this is a ridiculously absurd interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And the history of this was that um, this was one of the Reconstruction Amendments um, and that the uh, Section 3 that talks about this term insurrection is not self-executing. Section 5 says that Congress uh, has to legislate in order to enforce and Congress has not legislated uh, beyond the, you know, anything that was back from the post-Civil War era. We've never had the 14th Amendment um, be a timely issue in our modern era. Um, but you had a, a little bit different opinion, and before the break, we're talking about um, the difference, of course, between a um, a civil trial and, and civil liability, um, which just requires a preponderance of the evidence, has it doesn't have all of the due process concerns that a criminal conviction would, and occasionally right. people can be found liable civil even when they're not criminally convicted. So go ahead um, with that analysis. Right. Well, you know, the, as far as I know, the, section, the uh, 14th Amendment Section 3 has been applied and prevented people from taking office eight times in the past. Uh, in those cases, none of those individuals were convicted of insurrection. Okay. Um, that was right after the Civil War and so on and so forth. And this is always a problem that you have with these laws that were you know, put into effect like after the Civil War, which is a very specific thing. Do they still apply now? So um, as far as the Section 5 and this being under the jurisdiction of Congress, the contradiction there is that Section 3 goes on and says that the only way to overturn this is for a two-thirds vote of the Congress. Well, why would, why would Congress vote to ban the person and then turn around and do a two-thirds vote to unban the person? So it seems like a conflict there. And this is why I think the, the Supreme Court needs to jump into this and to clarify this. Because it yeah. is very convoluted and confusing. Uh, my position on all this is I wish none of this was happening. Uh, just like Governor DeSantis said, you know, this, if Trump is, is the nominee, this is going to be all about the, the, the uh, you know, indictments and all about this and that drama and this drama. It's not going to be forward looking about, you know, how are we going to make America the, the best country it can be? And, and he said, that's what my campaign's about. So, uh, but I, right now, I believe the last time I checked, there are like 18 states looking at this. And as far as I know, every lawsuit, on this is being brought by Republicans. You know, they may be anti-Trump Republicans, but Republicans are bringing these lawsuits. So it's a big mess. And we'll just have to see what um, the Supreme Court says uh, and gives a final decision on it. It is good to, that it be clarified. Now that it's, you know, we've gone for, you know, 100 years without this being an issue. And now that it's an issue again, uh, I think it really does need to be clarified by then. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Everybody's got an opinion on this, uh, but it really comes down to what the, the Supreme Court is going to say. Yeah, and they're going to hear oral arguments on the 14th Amendment issue on uh, February 8th, and uh, that right. will be really fascinating. So we'll definitely break that down uh, next month. But in the meantime, Bill Mitchell, we do have Iowa coming up um, yeah. in a week. And and so, th you know, th the polls are suggesting uh, that President Trump is the clear runaway. But um, our good friend, um, uh, Robert Salvador, who is right. a um, an AI CEO, 
um, tech company uh, CEO in Florida had a really interesting um, new data model in polling. And I want to play this clip from um, the Steve Day show yesterday. And Rob is going to be on, um, by the way, on this show, um, e- uh, either tomorrow or early next week to talk more about this. But I, but because uh, Bill Mitchell and I talk so much about polling, uh, Bill, I wanted to get your reaction to this. So this is cut two. I mean, it started with just looking at the poll results and then looking at the way the media was portraying these polls. So the math behind polling and pollsters is pretty sound in that it's statistics and probability. You know, so I've made this reference before. If you have a big bowl of Skittles with all different colors, if you reach into that bowl and grab, you know, five different handfuls of Skittles and you put them on the table, do that 10 times you can pretty much measure with reasonable accuracy all the different colors of Skittles that are in the bigger bowl. That's just pure statistics. And that's what people try to do, you know, in polling and elections and whatnot. But the problem is if you don't have an actual random sample set, and also if there's anything that impacts, you know, how people are gonna respond to you, you're not gonna get an accurate, you know, sample. You're not gonna get a good poll and therefore it's kind of garbage in, garbage out, which is what we call it, you know, in the data industry. So you start looking at these polls, and the first one I posted was a Rasmussen poll that in 2007, I think it was November 2007, showed all of them wrong. Every single pollster was way off. I think they said Rudy Giuliani was going to win uh, by 10, 15, 20 points, and it ended up being John McCain, you know, who won pretty handily. So that set off some Twitter virality uh, where Rasmussen reports blocked thousands of DeSantis supporters. So then I started looking and saying, okay, you know, these polls, they're not showing us how they collect them. Mm-hmm. They're presenting things with 1.8% response rates, which basically means, you know, a very low response rate. And then they're bringing these on TV and using them to say we should cancel elections or we should not have primary debates and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of just set out looking at the mechanisms that are used and there's just better ways to do it. And with technology, just like tech enables so many other industries, Tech should enable polls and pollsters to be more accurate and more trustworthy, not the opposite. And, you know, we started just seeing that poll after poll either was inaccurate or they weren't being transparent or they were looking at data that, you know, just as a a tech person, I would not consider good data. So that's why we set out to do this, you know, side project that's getting all this attention. So this is Rob Salvador, um, who is is kind of building this new AI and data driven poll model. And I think, you know, regardless of the outcome of, of uh, this primary, Bill Mitchell, this could be a useful tool um, for future elections. Yeah, you know, the problem with polling is, it's, you know, they say that video killed the radio star. Well, caller ID killed the polling star. Um, basically, uh, in order in order for you to take a stand, uh, a sample of 800 people and have that represent, you know, 150 million voters, uh, that has to be a scientifically random sample. You need about a 90% response rate. And you used to be able to get that with landlines and regular phones and people just pick up the phone and talk to you. But now with caller ID and that sort of thing, uh, this latest Trafalgar poll came out and had a 1% response rate. This is compared to a 90% response rate. So what that means is these polls are no longer randomly sample, are, are randomly or scientifically uh, random. And if a poll is not scientifically random, it literally is just pure fiction. It is whatever the pollster wants to plug in and, and figure that out. And, you know, so these pollsters, because they can't get a hold of people on the phone, what do they do? They go off of old lists. Well, who are the old lists? Well, the most recent lists were the 2020 election. Well, who were they 
who was talking to pollsters in the 2020 election? Trump's biggest supporters. So just by the nature of the way the poll is done, it's going to be overloaded with Trump's core supporters. Because remember back when uh, uh, Romney was running against Obama, and Romney destroyed Obama in that first debate. And uh, we came out with a new poll from Gallup that said that Romney was leading Obama by seven points. Like, oh, my God, it's over. But what happened was, because the uh, Obama supporters were so depressed after that debate, they didn't want to talk to the pollsters. Whereas the Romney supporters were very excited. They wanted to talk to the pollsters. So you got an overflow of Romney supporters, but it really wasn't representative of the electorate. And that's what you're getting now and going off these lists and so on and so forth. So uh, it really is. And you don't know who's paying for the polls. I mean, it really is uh, kind of crazy. I mean, for instance, and I, I know we're in a rush, but Governor DeSantis got the endorsement of Governor Reynolds in, uh, in Iowa, and he actually lost ground in the polling uh nikki haley got the endorsement of sununu in new hampshire and she gained 20 points overnight i mean come on you know does this make sense to you it doesn't make sense to me so it, it's all very suspect and and we're just gonna have to see what happens on uh, in iowa and i think DeSantis is gonna do very very well in DeSantis. uh and iowa he's got the ground game he's got the big endorsements uh, uh trump really hurt himself with that you know, God made Trump video. That's you know, getting a lot of blowback for evangelicals uh, in Iowa. So I think we're going to have a really good night out. And and I think it will be really interesting and uh, kind of the bellwether to see what happens in Iowa and whether the polls um, are accurate. And, and if they aren't, and this is much closer than the polls have suggested, and it's not just a clear blowout runaway uh, from Donald Trump, then I think the polls moving forward are going to be even more suspect. And the Trump campaign won't be able to just tout those right. as, um, as, you know, this is a foregone conclusion that he's going to win the nomination. So in your view, Bill Mitchell, what would be um, what would be close enough, even if, if Governor DeSantis doesn't win Iowa, what would be a, a close enough race that in your view would say, OK, um, we can now say that the polls are wrong and this really is a two man race now? Yeah, um, well, it really it's hard to say exactly. Of course, I want him to win. <laughs> Winning would be the best of anything. Um, and if, uh, you know, if he can come in uh, closer than, um, I think if he comes in closer than 10 points, it, it is, you know, within uh, Trump, that puts the lie to the polls that saying Trump's ahead by 30 points. If he comes in with five points, then that really shakes it up. So uh, best solution, the Santos wins outright. Um, I'd like to see him come in within, uh, within five points. But, you know, Trump has got that, he's got that incumbent thing going on. And so, you know, we watched DeSantis in his town hall last night. It was absolutely amazing. You know, anybody in Iowa that was undecided, that was kind of looking for an exit ramp from Trump. Yeah, I, I told the pollster Trump, but I, I'm not, you know, a lot of drama. I'm not really sure if I want to do him again. You know, and they saw DeSantis like, OK, yeah, I can I can go with this guy. So uh, we'll see. We're just going to have to see what I'm so glad, Jenna, that's on the 15th because I'm so tired of all these polls. I really want to get a solution <laughs> on this. And you got to remember that, you know, uh, the day before um, the Iowa caucus, uh, November 3rd of 2007 uh, or 2008, um, Hillary Clinton was 23 points ahead of Obama nationally. And Obama won that caucus and it turned the whole thing around. So that's what can happen when you have somebody who is the presumed winner. OK, it's like it's owed to them. It's their turn this time. And then you have the challenger and the challenger upsets the apple cart in Iowa and destroys that veil of, of uh, unbeatableness. 
Okay, that's a word I just made up. Okay, then uh, that <laughs> unbeatableness. That's that's I, a pollster word, uh, right? <laughs> un, unbeatable. Yes, that's that's. Don't look for that in the dictionary because I'm not going to find it. But, um, anyway, I, I think that that could change this entire thing. So while Iowa doesn't seem to be kingmaker because it is a proportional state, even if you win, you only win in one or two delegates more than the next guy. Uh, it can change the entire idea behind this. That Trump is inevitable. Uh, and that's that's what we're looking for in this. So I would love to send us to win. That would be amazing. But if he gets within five points, that would be just about as amazing because they're predicting Trump's going to win by like 30 to 40 points, which is, I mean, is crazy. So, um, yeah, that's my thought yeah. on that. Uh, and, and we'll see. And and the the. Um... The weather forecast for Iowa, I was I was looking at this on uh, social media. There were a number of people that posted that some of these counties um, are supposed to be, you know, in the all the way up to negative 14 degrees. And, you know, maybe for people who are in Tupelo, Mississippi right now are thinking, eh, not too bad, you know. But um, and maybe Iowans are OK with that. Um, but do you think that that is going to impact turnout in terms of the caucus at all? Uh, well, I, I've been hearing that a lot of Trump support in Iowa is the older voters, you know, like really older voters. And um, that might deter their turnout. Also, if you ever lived anywhere where it's 14, negative 14 degrees out, and I have, and I lived in Denver, um, it's hard getting your car to Same. Start, <laughs> you know, unless, <laughs> yeah. you, unless you've got a block heater on your car. So that's a problem. And also, it's not just me negative 14 degrees. It's going to be 87% humidity. And so wow. if you've ever been anywhere where it's that cold and you have almost 100% humidity, it's like... It's like a smack in the face to walk outside. So we'll see what happens on that. Um, yeah, you know, and this so is why, unknowns. by the way, Colorado was way better in terms of uh, the weather and it's cold because there's almost like no humidity there. But when it's cold and damp, it is just the worst. So we'll see um, about that. And then in the last two minutes I have with you, um, Bill Mitchell, and uh, definitely follow him on X. Um, he is yourvoicenews.com and also at MitchellVII. Um, so Vivek Ramaswamy didn't qualify for the last debate. Um, do you think he drops out after Iowa? Um, yeah. Well, he's got you know he's got, still got some money. Guys, obviously got a lot of money. Um, we'll see, and we'll see what happens in New Hampshire. Of course, you know uh, Nikki Haley is doing you know so great. But here's the thing that makes no sense about polling: Nikki Haley has had a disastrous month. I mean, she has been a gas fest. For the past month, she lost the d- debate. She has a brand new gas every day. And for some reason, she just keeps going up the poll. <laughs> I don't get it. It's like, what is driving this woman's phone number? So we'll see what happens. We'll see how strong she is in, in New Hampshire. We'll see if DeSantis doing very well in Iowa uh, propels him in New Hampshire at all. So a lot of unknowns, a lot of unknowns. It's all going to be uh, – we're going to find out a lot in the next 60 days as far as this campaign is is going to go and of course my money is on governor DeSantis because i mean just watch his his town hall last night the guy is just so on it you know on every issue to me governor DeSantis is the candidate that i was hoping trump would be in 2016 but mm-hmm. DeSantis really has a good he's young he's brilliant he's got a great family like zero drama he's not you know he's not on anybody's list you know he's not indicted by anybody he can just go in there and do a great job running the country, running the back office. And for those who say he doesn't have enough charisma, I thought he was very charismatic about it last night. But you got to remember, a president, a sitting president, doesn't really give a lot of speeches, like maybe the State of the Union and maybe funerals. But he doesn't give a lot of speeches. Most of what he is doing is running running the back office, running the show. And, and, and that changed Santa, a lot. State of the Union does that. 
I'm sorry. Yeah, and that changed a lot with uh, with President Trump, who wanted to be his own press secretary. And so I think that's what a lot of people are accustomed to now, instead of the more traditional yeah. uh, presidential view that, you know, your press secretary does all of that and you're actually uh, running right. things and actually governing. And that's what I personally love um, about Governor DeSantis. But you're right, Bill Mitchell, that we will learn a lot in the next 60 days. It's going to be very interesting. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna, at AFR.net. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.